Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Sorry for the lateness on this episode. We wanted to make sure we really did our due diligence on this one. Uh, So we thank you to our producer, Alex, for uh, pointing out some uh, flaws and uh, having us take some stuff out. We record some stuff, uh, you know, with everything going on in our lives. We just wanted to make sure we got it right. So appreciate you uh, tuning in. Hello and welcome back again to Cross of Gold. Uh, you're here with your socialist brother, Cyrus. As per usual, I'm joined by my brother, Chase, the Christian brother. Chase, how are we doing today? Oh, you know how we're doing. We're confused, we're passionate, and I feel like I've been turned around in an elevator a few times. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, it's probably a good way um, of describing it. I think probably you're not the only one feeling that way these days. Um, as, uh, many of you who have listened before know, we've been going through a couple different topics recently. We did, uh, Ecclesiastes and we did the communist manifesto amongst other things. And we were planning on, uh, doing some diving into the gospels this week, but, uh, as much as we try to stay away from current events, we felt a little bit compelled to, uh, talk about some stuff that's been going on in the news recently. Yeah. And if you're just joining us, we have been trying to focus on conceptual ideological, and hyper practical, right? And loving each other while we're doing it and trying to blow out of the stuff that is really just a distraction. And we've had a, a, what, sorry, a dozen people reach out and ask if we we're going to tackle Israel Palestine. And so, man, how many times have we talked about this in the last two weeks and initially decided to take a hard pass? Yeah, I think that was my initial reaction was, you know, neither of us are experts on the subject. I I certainly have an opinion, as do you. And married to a Jewish lady and you are (laughs) not. So and I'm and I'm not. Yeah. And we we didn't know how much uh, how much daylight exactly would be between those two opinions and whether or not it would be worth it or that we could do it. in you know, sort of the tried brotherly loving way that we've tried to approach things with this podcast. But because of that mere fact that we were uh, a little bit afraid to take it on, we figured we'd at least give it a shot and uh, try and try and do it with a little bit of a different uh, posture than, than others might. A lot of humility, a little bit of humor. And after listening to almost a dozen other podcast shows, political slants on this, I've seen people, it's like one of two formats. You've got a group of two or three on one side, just racking points up on the other. And they're either ignorant or... Uh, intentionally leaving the other side out, or I've listened to a few decent debates, but it's also very passive aggressive and a lot of still point scoring. So Cyrus and I are going to focus on two things today. One, we're going to go in a little bit more into the history, um, things that you can take with you into future conflicts that will assuredly, you know, represent themselves or rebrand themselves. And then we're going to seek to understand each other's positions, not to agree or to even convince each other, but just to kind of hit the, I see you over there. I can see how you see that. So as Cyrus has had a fair frame up, 
Yeah, I think that's that's how I'm trying to to approach it. Like I said, we, we do have opinions and don't necessarily expect to change each other's minds about this. But if you're someone out there who has been seeing all this happening recently and doesn't really know what to make of any of it, then this is for you and or for someone who go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> so cute. I was just going to say, if you're someone who does have opinions on this, hopefully it will at least give you a, a more of a, a basis for your own opinion or an understanding of the other side to a little bit more of an extent. Yeah. This is one in which it's like the international conflict times abortion, right? Or it's, it's, it's that <laughs> one for the folks that like, if you were a hardcore pro-choice pro-life believer, then you really don't have a stomach for the other folks' opinion. And for whatever reason, this is one of those. Like we got people clashing in the streets. And so if you are one-sided and you've got the stomach to listen to Cyrus's craziness, then um, then good on you. And then it'll be make you, well, one, more educated, but two, just the act of doing that is loving. It's depolarizing. It's like balancing out all the Fox or MSNBC you're ingesting. You know what I'm saying? So like this is good for us. This is a good thing we believe. Yeah, I mean, it has taken Chase and I uh, three to four to five conversations this week to get to that point in some ways of of not having that immediate toxic poison reaction to, you know, the thing the other person's saying. So as you're saying, building up our constitutions a little bit. And with all that, you know, it's not anyone's fault, but the American perspective on history is... um, a little America centric for one. A, a, a smidge. And- yeah. Whether you think you're America first or not, we look at the world through big red, white, and blue America goggles. Yeah. We've only been around for uh, under now 250 years, almost there. Four more years. I and think. what a great 250 years it's been. Lesson <laughs> to the world. But I think we, we act as though America's always been here. Um, and it's, it's useful to take ourselves out of the context a little bit and try to, to dive into some stuff that might be a little bit, beyond our uh, our historical imagination that we get in this country. And you know what? It's a great it's a great frame, Cyrus, because the international incident, oh shucks, over our lifetimes, it's gripped the world, um, has been over Brad Pitt. And, um, and I'm not underestimating, really, and I'm going to extrapolate on like Team Jen or Team Angelina. And <laughs> Um, and that, I mean, from the far reaches of Eastern China to, you know, Malibu and California, people had a side and they really didn't want to hear the other side because they believed in Team Jen uh, or Team Angelina. And so it's with that framework that I propose we sort of look at this. And I think we start it way back. Most of these podcasts that I've seen, new shows want to, you know, get smart and take us back to post-World War II, post-World War I history. Not even close. You need to go back to like two, three, four, five thousand BC, um, when maybe not that far, when <laughs> you had the father of everybody, the OG, Abraham himself, and Brad Pitt. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you think, yeah, the Brad Pitt of the ancient world. The, oh my goodness! And <laughs> and if you're not familiar with the story, Abraham, formerly known as Abram and Sarah, uh, formerly known as Sarai, uh, received a promise from God that um, God would bless the world through his offspring and that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And it's the scripture says that Abraham or Abram believed God and it was attributed to him as righteousness, right? So it's that faith in God that really um, also blesses Abram besides God's choosing of him. And so 
problem is like Sarai was, was barren, didn't have any kids. And it gets to the point where she's getting a little antsy on God's promise, gives her maidservant, a slave, Hagar, who's an Egyptian to um, Abraham and says, Hey, like, let's fulfill God's promise. So maybe my little preachiness in there saying like, if you ever feel like God's given you or your family a promise, you're getting impatient. And this is a, this is a good example of trying to make it work for yourself and getting in, getting ahead of, of God. So um, Abraham well, from the Christian perspective, from the Christian perspective. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. <laughs> so Abraham, yeah, thank you, Cyrus. Yeah. Cause the Muslims, uh, Muslims look at it a little differently. Um, does what his wife says and sleeps with Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant with a son. Uh, and Sarah starts getting treated contemptibly by Hagar. Um, she sends Hagar away. Um, Angel of the Lord appears to Hagar and says, hey, you need to go back and serve Sarah. Uh, Hagar ends up having, goes back, has a son, calls him Ishmael. And uh, God says he's going to bless and protect Ishmael and his offspring. He says this is his hand's going to be against everybody, but he's with Hagar and Ishmael. Um, eventually, Angel of the Lord appears and says Sarah's going to actually have a son, as he was was told. And this is like Sarah in her 90s. She laughs. Long story short, she has Isaac, which is the father of the Jews. Uh, Ishmael being father of largely like the Muslims and through um, Abraham. So both, that's where you get the, the original Abrahamic like religion splitting off there. And yeah, for those who might not know, you know, Abraham features extremely prominently in the three biggest world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So a little, yeah, flippy history on, on, on how we started there. And so like fast forwarding us all the way through Isaac, uh, Abraham's son through Sarah and Ishmael, son through Hagar, um, Isaac. So I'm just going to really track the Jewish history. I've, I've almost finished the Quran, but I know that the, the Jewish narrative a little bit better. <clears throat> Abraham has Isaac. Um, Isaac ends up having Jacob. Um, whose name gets changed to Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons. And this is where you get the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Joseph is one of those sons who is taken to Egypt, is uh, becomes like the prime minister or the number two in Egypt. Um, this is where you um, have like the Jews really settling there. Um, something like 400, 490 years go by, they become enslaved because the Egyptians, long story short, um, get a little bit of antsy of the, the, the number of Jews. Uh, Moses comes around um, as basically saved out of an edict of like killing all Hebrew males, uh, is raised in Pharaoh's house, eventually kills an Egyptian sort of overlord who was afflicting a Jewish slave. He runs away, eventually comes back. Moses is the guy who leads the people out of Egypt via 10 plagues from God and some other miraculous signs that God people know the story I'm sure yeah so I'll I'll speed through it so he leads him into the desert and um, they wander around for 40 years because of some unfaithfulness of some spies and some scouts and the people of Israel Joshua takes them through the promised land though who was like Moses's right-hand guy and then um, he reclaims the promised land portions of it and so they go through the period of judges. They go through a period of kings, namely the first Jewish king is Saul, then David, then Solomon, and you have others. But basically after David, it starts taking a downhill um, as far as the king's faithfulness. And then 
that well, ultimately leads too interested in poetry and uh and uh you know libertineness oh yeah he had over a thousand wives many of which were foreign and god had said like don't marry foreign women because they'll lead you to their gods man yeah <laughs> um Solomon doesn't listen to god though as, as you could tell and had even more concubines um ultimately leading to something that many prophets were sent to warn the, the people about like re- repent from your sins don't sacrifice like children to Baal because that was, was largely the Philistine God and the Philistines are going to come in here really uh, suspiciously in a second. Um, <laughs> otherwise, like it's going to be mass destruction and devastation. Sure enough, the Babylonians come in and exile the Jews to Babylon. Um, and so they leave a remnant there, but it, they just basically lay waste to it. Um, the Jews are in captivity in Babylon and eventually the Persians take over. And so you had like, I think it's Nebuchadnezzar in charge of the Babylonians. And then you, when the Persians take over, you basically have Cyrus, King Cyrus, actually. Hey, my namesake. Uh, okay, so yeah, that's, that's a freaking good yeah. point. Maybe it's worth a, a smaller dip here in, in, in the history. So basically, and this is something that the John Sanders episode mentioned as he was digging through uh, prophecy and scripture, and this is sort of how he became a Christian. So there's a prophecy in Isaiah. I think it's like Isaiah 44. Don't hold me to it. Um, I, I think it's Isaiah 44, Isaiah 13, maybe both, where he basically says, like, before the temple is even destroyed, King Cyrus will bring the Jews back to Israel and um, a descendant. At, and so that this is obviously copied many times. And it's right. thought that uh, Daniel um, was one, like one of the wise men um, for Nebuchadnezzar and was, uh, you know, a huge blessing to Nebuchadnezzar and sort of his kingdom is carried over. And he shows this to King Cyrus. And in fact, if you're like super skeptical on biblical history, um, Josephus, which is a Jewish historian, um, actually records this in his work Antiquities that like King Cyrus was shown the scrolls that were way, way, way older than King Cyrus with the person take over Babylon of uh, Babylon. And, King and he was Cyrus, like, oh, that's me. He goes, oh, <laughs> I'm the dude to, to, to I'm the dude to carry out God's decree. It makes sense. I'm the I'm the man in charge of the world right now. And so that's right. He does it. And so he sends him back. And uh, again, for John Sanders, that was a particular like, wow, like you had to have something spiritual going on for you know, 150, 200 years before all this happens to call it out like that. So um, he sends them back and they're still sort of under the Persian empire, but like, you know, they rebuild the wall, the whole thing. Um, So you got King Cyrus, but then you have the Greeks come through with Alexander the Great. Then you've got Rome. And so that's now the time of Jesus. Um, He doesn't overthrow the Romans like the Jews thought he would. His, you know, kingdom is not of this world. Um, Then you have the Arabs push through, right? Then you've got the, what is it? The Fatimids, the um, I'm skipping some, but the Turks and the Ottomans basically freaking run it without, you know, a couple um, intercessions from the Crusades or the Egyptians or who was that slave class that like? Oh uh, yeah, uh, the Mamluks. Thank you. So uh, yeah, yeah, you know your history that's a whole too. Other history. Yeah, yeah. But... So we're skipping all this, but then so okay. So I guess I said all that to walk you through some Jewish history you might not have known, but also to like. Well, that's also um, not just the Jewish history, but that's the history of the, the land. The region, of, right. Well, uh, yeah, perfect. the region of Palestine. And, and I've been, you know, particularly at West Point and, and early in the army, was interested in all the, the conquering peoples that came through there. I didn't even talk about the Mongols and like Afghanistan and, and sort of the, the different empires moving through over periods of hundreds of years. And mm-hmm. 
um, after the Ottomans, you basically had the British. And um, and this is where I'm going to probably hand some of the story off to Cyrus, because the way the British left it is right, wrong or indifferent, sort of the hand that we're, we're dealt effectively. And it's from that that we've been like picking up the pieces. Cyrus, you, you think that's a fair, you know, I just skipped over a lot of what Rome did, a lot of what everyone else did, but. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that is fair because during the time of, of the Ottoman Empire's rule of the area, well, you know, definitely it wasn't perfect, of course, in many ways. But that plot of land where that we now call you know Palestine and Israel um, was inhabited by all kinds of people. There were Christians, there were Jews, there were Muslims, um, you know, more or less living peaceably side by side. Well, I mean, yeah, peaceably, you know, whatever that means. And, you know, under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, yeah, you can't 400 be too years. otherwise you're going to get smacked around a little bit, of course. But yeah. And so um, and so it's from this perspective that we wanted to start. And maybe I should have gone in a little bit more of the different empires here. But like, that's why when I hear the tit for tat between Israel, which I, I'm largely in favor of and support and Palestine. Oh, well, we were here first. Like, dude, get out of here. Like both y'all have been here since the beginning of time. Right. And so whether like, whatever peace accords or 1948 agreements, which we'll sort of touch on in the future, it's kind of like I, all those arguments sort of fall deaf on me. Like, oh, well, the, yeah, you know, like Palestinians the, uh, have been here for hundreds like, of years. Yeah. Well, the Jews have been there thousands of years with the Palestinians. Oh, the one yes. thing I mentioned about the Palestinians, Cyrus, Cyrus. Is no, you're good. Palestine comes from the root word, Cyrus, you know it. Uh, I think Philistia. Philistia. Uh, Quick mention on the connection between Palestinians and the Philistines. There's a lot of uh, misinformation going on on this one, and I've been confused at different points. There's certainly an epitomology connection, but I don't know if there's enough evidence to say there's a connection of genealogy between the Philistines and the Palestinians. It is interesting to note um, maybe a few things of history and then a, and a note about what, you know, the Netanyahu clan has been talking about. So uh, the, the entire land was renamed uh, Palestine in the second century after the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, namely as a big middle finger to the Jewish people for all their attempts at revolts and rebellions. Um, I guess, you know, what one quick ode to what does Phil Stephen even mean? It, uh, I think it's from the Hebrew word, a root word like invader. So you can definitely uh, call a couple different people potentially Philistine. I think one thing though, it's, it's, it's worth mentioning uh, within like the two or three years ago, the late uh, 2019, 2020 timeframe, um, there was, there have been spats back and forth about, um, you know, even Netanyahu tweeting, who is the prime minister of Israel. Now there's recent DNA evidence that says the biblical Philistines look like they migrated from Southern Europe and have similarities in, uh, in DNA with, with, with those types of ancestors and making like strong allusions to the modern day Palestinians, therefore don't really have the same kind of land claim and the same kind of history claim uh, that the Jews do in the area. So um, the, the waters are definitely muddied and, and um, any type of, uh, you know, maybe self-admitted marketing to American Christians that uh, the Palestinians don't belong there probably only helps uh, the hardliners in Israel. Yeah. And like the, the Palestinian people themselves uh, claim their genealogy to be traced back to the Arabian Peninsula and that they started to migrate there 
to Palestine shortly after the you know Islamic conquests uh, by the Ottoman Empire and others, Saladin and whatnot. So it's yeah, it, it's it's pretty hard to say that the Palestinian people are in any way connected to the biblical Philistines, but that is where the the namesake of the land comes from. And you know, anytime we talk genealogies, to me that is just like odes to team sarah team hagar from my like young american historical perspective like you're really talking like well was it three thousand years or four thousand years of you know history at that point you're like holy smokes like we're we're we weren't even a twinkle in you know world history's eye at that point yeah and 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 meanwhile you know benjamin Netanyahu's family is from poland his original last name is milikovsky when he was a high school classmate with Reggie Jackson in Philadelphia, I'll say that. So all of that to say that any of those claims are specious at best by either side. Yeah. Again, so just be careful uh, putting too much weight yourself in one of these types of arguments. Whatever right anyone thinks they have to exist is really your right to defend your ability to exist in that place. So, yeah. Anyways, all yeah, that said. again, perfect. Like, again, so when I hear Americans talking about like historic rights of people and pushing people off their land, get a little squeamish, given my best friend's a Native American. And I'm like, mm, yeah, <laughs> if we if we really want to talk about historic rights to land. Yeah, we yeah. have our own humans exercise there. All right. Um, so that said, uh, that is a nice transition into what happened after the end of World War One and the fall of the Ottoman Empire when the British set up the, I believe it's called the Palestine Authority. So after the British set up the Palestine Authority, uh, Arthur Balfour, with the assistance of, uh, I forget the guy's first name, but a Rothschild, a, a lord, uh, wrote the Balfour Declaration Nathan. that would, uh, quote unquote, establish a national home for the Jewish people. Uh, so that, you know, has been interpreted in many different ways, but at the time, um, in Palestine, Zionists from Great Britain, as well as from other parts of Europe, began moving to Israel in greater and greater numbers under the authority and protection of the British Empire. So at the time, this uh, began the displacement of the Palestinian people, you know, tens of thousands sort of were having to be moved out of their areas to make room for these new Jewish settlers. And that led to some enmity between the groups. Um, it started uh, so, uh, some revolts, uh, which the British promptly crushed. Um, and yeah, the British pretty... uh, didn't take kindly to uh, uprisings in their little areas. <laughs> no, no, no. And as we'll see, they, they you know, don't necessarily i mean they do favor one side for sure but towards the end they sort of wash their hands of it because by 1939 they totally crushed the palestinian revolt but in an effort to quell further resistance from the palestinians they started to limit the number of jews who could come to uh to the new home um and that inspired zionists in israel to start a campaign of terrorist attacks both against british authorities and against palestinians who i'm sure they didn't like that negative so then by 1947, uh, after more than two decades of British rule, end of World War II, the British are like, I don't. I'm spent, man. We just fought I'm Hitler. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help these people um, is probably the, the, at least the attitude they took. And they handed things over to the United Nations, uh, which proposed a plan to partition Palestine into two sections, an independent Jewish state and an independent Arab state. Um, the city of Jerusalem, which was claimed as a capital by both Jews and the Palestinian Arabs, uh, was to be sort of an international territory with special status and considerations that 
we don't necessarily need to get into all of right now. Yeah, we, um, a lot of other shows where we could go into that. We've cut this from previous conversations. Um, one yes. thing to so, say, though, well, I was just going to say that at that at that time, uh, the partition plan that the UN put forward, uh, the Jewish leaders accepted the plan, um, but the Palestinian Arabs uh, vehemently opposed it, more or less. Huge um, point of and, reference for a lot of pro-Israelites. Uh, you know, hey, we accepted the plan, got a state. You didn't. You didn't. Keep going, Cyrus. Yes, yes, definitely. So, yeah, essentially the UN, which, you know, was the Western powers, Britain and the United States and France. Um, and, you know, not to say that uh, this was the full motivation, but a lot of them really just didn't want Jews in their country. Uh, wasn't necessarily too dissimilar from, you know, like Liberia, where they're like, well, we don't want Africans here, but we don't want to keep them as slaves. We'll just send it back. Anyways, after that, uh, that said, uh, by early 1948, uh, after the partition plan had been begun to be put into effect by the United Nations, uh, Zionists in Israel had already captured dozens of towns and cities outside the borders proposed by the UN. Um, you know, there were beginnings of massacres of civilians, um, and essentially the message was if, if Palestinians didn't leave, they would be killed. In the months preceding the end of British authority, you know, right before the actual handover of, of power and the, the proposition, you know, took full control, Israelis captured Haifa, which is one of the largest cities in Palestine, and laid plans to capture Jaffa, essentially led to war breaking out uh, after the creation of the state of Israel between them and the Palestinians and their Arab allies. So after war broke out, the UN appointed an ambassador, uh, Folk Bernadotte, who was uh, more sympathetic to the pal plight of the Palestinians, he was assassinated by Zionists in 1948. Uh, and this is really when the Nakba, which is the uh, Arab or the Palestinian word for uh, catastrophe, begins to, to really take place. Uh, at that time, more than 700,000 Palestinians, three quarters of the Palestinian population of the country, were driven from their homes and made refugees. Uh, about 13,000 were killed by the military. And by this time, Israel had consolidated about 78% of Palestine under its control. Uh, and that was, you know, a, a big step up from the 55% that the UN plan proposed. Uh, so by May 1948, less than a year after the partition plan for Palestine was introduced, Britain withdrew, Israel declared itself an independent state. So the consequences of the Nakba were essentially what led to that Arab-Israeli war between uh, Israel and Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and Lebanon in a coalition against Israel. Uh, but by the war's end in 1949, Israel controlled more than two thirds of uh, whatever the former British mandate of the Palestine Authority was. And, you know, and maybe taking us just to the next huge conflict, this, the Six Days War, again, skipping like two decades, two and a half of uh, skirmishes going of back. Which there was, you know, various conflicts, skirmishes, massacres, that sort of thing. But the next big yeah, confrontation of power was the Six Days War. Six Days War, but I guess to set the quick context for all of us, because I know I've had a lot of friends asking me, like, like, why have we been supporters of Israel in the first place, besides like this Christian support of Israel, which we might get into later? Well, don't forget communism. And Israel is in a perfect position for all this, right? They are like a forward American airbase and a great place to, like, one, just have some you know, a forward operating base. So a lot of the technology we gave them, a lot of the intelligence we shared with them, a lot of the trust that we've built with them, like started in these decades where it was like an existential threat and Israel is in like a key place and is a strong American ally. So 
um, you know, they've had our back when uh, the playground has been against us. Yeah, because the, there was a, a position of the Soviets. P- people, I think, now tend to think of the, uh, the Middle East as being purely run by, you know, Islamic oriented governments. But at the time, at this time, that was not true. Uh, there were many governments. There, there was, of course, conflict, but there were a lot of democratic governments, some communistic governments coming into form. Uh, Mossadegh had already, by this point already been elected in, in uh, Iran, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Afghanistan was on its way to becoming a communist country. So there was a, a severe, at least as the U.S. saw it, threat of communism growing and spreading in the Middle East. And yeah, and it's kind of with our support of Israel that in a few of the countries we you know, set up or support those strongmen issue in uh, reactionary, uh, pro-religious, largely like hardcore Islamic governments. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just the interesting thing about, you know, the way people talk about Israel as being the only democracy in the Middle East. It's like, well, we have something to do with that. <laughs> there used to be more. Um, <laughs> a lot of those we overthrew. Yeah, so following the, you know, 1948 Nakba and the uh, years of bad relations afterwards, uh, in 1967, all those bad relations kind of culminated in in one of the larger conflicts of the Arab-Israeli conflicts. Uh, And that's the Six Days War, also the 1967 war, there's June War, a lot of different names for all these. But essentially what had happened was that after Soviet intelligence had led to Uh, saying that the Israelis were massing on uh, the border uh, of the Sinai Peninsula. The Egyptians postured on the Israeli border. Um, uh, There were originally UN forces there to ensure that the Straits of Tehran were kept open, which was an Israeli demand that from previous conflicts and when the Egyptians began to posture on the Israeli border, at that point, the Israeli army launched preemptive airstrikes on the Egyptian Air Force, which was uh, currently grounded who wouldn't i mean <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so basically completely decimated their air force and they simultaneously launched a ground assault into the sinai peninsula uh egyptian forces pretty much immediately retreated after some some basic resistance uh and that led to uh pretty much the largest amount of territory that israel has covered in its existence after that point between the fighting they did with Jordan and, and Syria at that time, they took over the Golden Golan Heights, all of uh, Palestine and the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, they so really that, uh, like let the let slip the dogs of war. They were hustling. Yes, definitely. And they, they were taking advantage of the opportunity. And that those conflicts are what sort of, you know, directly led six years later to the, the Arab Israeli war. That's right. And so uh, Jews look at this as an opportunity to say, yeah, like, so we, we seceded a lot of those gains for the sake of peace after this as well. Right. And you know what, just because it happened over, you know, 60 years ago does not matter. That might as well have happened last week. So continue. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, then there were more wars, which, you know, we don't want to get too into the weeds on, but there was the October war, which I think most people know is the Yom Kippur or Ramadan war. Um, which, you know, had a little bit more uh, give and take and it sort of, you know, changed the air of Israeli invincibility because there, the war was not nearly as decisive as the 1967 or the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, and then as you get a little bit further, we get into uh, the uh, roots of the Israeli-Lebanon conflict. And that is when Palestine as a, a real political entity, I feel, starts to make 
actual impact on, on the international political scene because you have the PLO, uh, Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization, which was formed for the purpose of establishing a Palestinian Arab state. Now, that was in 1964, but by the time you get to uh, you know, the Israeli-Lebanese conflict, they're in full force working, if I'm not mistaken, in southern Lebanon, um, and that leads to more conflict. Um, that, all of that is to say that ramps up essentially to uh, 1993, and that is the beginning of the Oslo peace accords between Palestinian and Israeli leaders. Um, this is when the PLO uh, successfully negotiates for Israel's removal from Gaza, uh, from the West Bank, and from the Golan Heights. Uh, I, I might be missing something, but I'm pretty sure that's that's more or less what happened, and that, and that more or less set the map that we you know uh, know today. Um, at the time of the beginning of the Oslo Accords, also it was an effort to curb the uh, further Israeli settlements um, that were expanding into the West Bank, into the Gaza Strip and elsewhere. Uh, so at the time, uh, 1993, when the first accords were signed, there were 200,000 Jews living in Jewish settlements. Now there are upwards of 600,000, which is about 10% of the Jewish population living in uh, settlements in the West Bank and, and other Palestinian areas. And honorable mention for Yasser Arafat, which is, or an honorable mention, however you want to look at it, <laughs> the leader of basically the Palestine Liberation Organization from 1964 to 2004, something like that. And so he was basically the huge faith of it. And you know what, um, again, I'm, I'm kind of scoring... Some of these, I think it's 69, but you're close. Uh, thank you. 69 to, to, to 04. Oh yeah. Okay. For 64 is the year it started. Got it. Yeah. So one thing worth mentioning that Bill Clinton and some of these Camp David Accords, a lot of the times these things are going on basically had said like, and this is, you know, over decades, but yeah, he was referring to a few different occasions that Yasser Arafat didn't really negotiate in good faith. He would just keep saying no, 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 without have, providing counter examples and this is something that Cyrus said a little bit more, which sets us up for the like last couple years, Trump piece of uh, plan and that sort of thing, is that um, there's typically a resistance to acknowledge the right of existence um, for the, from the Palestinian perspective. Bottom line, Palestinians want to land, but they don't also want to acknowledge Israel as like a legitimate state and somebody who's going to be there in the future. So that's been like largely that ex the excuse that and violence of the Israelis to say like, hey, like we can't agree to this if you don't agree to acknowledge us. And so I'm not trying yeah. to you know, usurp that, Cyrus, but that just sort of sets the scene. No, I think that's a that's a good distinction to make, because I think you know, the Palestinian perspective is, you know, you, you stole our country like it, it would be it would be as if, you know we here in America, like the international community, all the other most powerful countries in the world said, um, oh, you know, indigenous people have had it pretty, pretty hard. Um, America, you've probably been, you know, among the worst defenders of that. And there's plenty of space out there. So we're just going to take the West coast of the United States and the Midwest. And you can't live there anymore. Um, United States, you have to give that up to, you know, the indigenous peoples of the world, which, hey, Maybe not the worst plan in the world, but uh, at the at the same time, I feel like a lot of Americans would would you know see that as being stolen. 
Um, and that's how the Palestinians feel. But the Jews, uh, so the Jews as- feel too, though, like it's their land. They've got it. And so it's their Jerusalem, their capital, in a sense. And so they're like, that's what even Netanyahu has been said, like, hey, this is our capital. We are trying to develop it. And we're trying to put, you know, high rises up to f- fit more people where there are like, you know, single family shacks. So, you know, you have the same kind of thing. Like if Americans were told, you know, put America as if they were Israelites. Hey, yeah. You know what? We want you to give up a few states to the Palestinians. It's like, well, or to, to the Native Americans. We're like, um, no, it, it's ours. Get out of here. The rest of the world. You don't know. Yeah, exactly. And also they gave them a bunch of nuclear weapons. Um, then you're about the equivalent. Um, <laughs> yeah, so speeding up. past kind of the last 13 years or so, there have been a number of intifadas, some nonviolent from the Palestinians, some more violence. Um, and then to the last 2018, I believe, was when uh, Trump moved the capital or, or the embassy of the United States to Jerusalem, in a sense, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which is a pretty strong point of contention for the Palestinians who also believe they have a claim to Jerusalem as their One other thing I'd like to mention and have you develop, Cyrus, because you know a little bit better than I do, but and that's the collateral impacts. So Trump also brought a different perspective to Israel, certainly a stronger one than many of the preceding administrations, which was Palestinians have lost. Like Israel is like, get with the program. And it wasn't just that towards Israel and Palestine that had an impact on a number of the neighboring countries. And so it's basically like, get with the program, neighboring countries. Yeah, it almost wasn't even a matter of like, oh, Israel deserves this or this is what's right to do. It was just a plain realpolitik assessment of the facts, which I think is largely how Israel views things, too, which is the war is more or less over. These are the the this is the anything else is the death rattle of the Palestinian cause. Um and that is sort of the you know mentality I think of both the U.S. and Israel as we entered into this most recent you know, in the Trump administration. So you had like what Bahrain um, was it Qatar? Who else? I know uh, Sudan and UAE and Saudi Arabia. I believe all normalized relations with Israel. Oh, not which, Qatar. That sorry, I'm UAE. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't. Maybe I'm not sure. But um, well, got, I mean, they've got way too much craziness going on there. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, but. All that to say, you know, not that they weren't doing arms deals and and various stuff, you know, under the table beforehand, but that was the official uh, normalized relations for the two countries. One other thing to sort of contextualize this is that these Arab countries that are normalizing relations with Israel is also a bit of a, a informal coalition as it's starting to build against who are our biggest enemies in the region. Iran, Syria, or really the Shia uh, militant Islamic sects that are you know, infiltrating Iraq and sort of trying to destabilize that. And so you have these countries who certainly don't like Israel, but they're getting with America and Israel's get with the program pitch, and they're consolidating against the extremists um, out of running, been running shop out of Iran. Yeah, I mean, I think arguably uh, Iran is the second most powerful military in the region, uh, the most organized, probably stable state, more or less, although they have their own problems. Um, so it's it's a constant thorn in Iran's side and a constant reminder that, you know, there's a U.S. presence essentially in the region. Uh, that said, I think we should skip ahead a little bit. I uh, don't want to don't want to 
give anything an unfair shake, but there's been a lot in the last three months that has led us up to what we've seen up to this now ceasefire as, yep. as we recorded this. So in the last three months, uh, Palestinians living in East Jerusalem in the Sheikh uh, Jarrah neighborhood, uh, probably butchering that pronunciation, but doing my best. And uh, these uh, people who were living in this neighborhood in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, were refugees from the original expulsion in the Nakba. Uh, it was when the Kingdom of Jordan uh, had control over East Jerusalem. They gave up their refugee status in exchange for homes in this neighborhood. Uh, yeah, so just to so, clarify, yeah, so it's like it, when this 1948 agreement goes down, um, Jews were actually living there. They left in order to get some of the space that was promised to them. And so you had you know, Palestinians or Jordanians or uh, take this place. And so for the last effectively 60 years, I mean, you've got, you know, parents that grandparents that, that moved there or, you know, have grown up there. Um, and so now the Jews are trying to sort of move back in saying, Hey, we've like had this since a thousand years. It's next to uh, you know, a, a priest prophet of, of, of that's been Jewish. This has always been like a Jewish little area. Yeah. There, that whole area, I mean, is, to, to the Israelis or their justification for a lot of the you know evictions they've been doing in Sheikh Jarrah and other neighborhoods is there's archaeological evidence that says Team Sarah be associated with King David and they have land deeds dating back to the Ottoman Empire. So there's a lot of, you know, Team Sarah evidence. See, Team Sarah evidence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So you don't even have to have your name on the land deed to get the land. You just have to be Jewish. You could be from Brooklyn or Long Island and get it. Israeli Supreme Court, as it would turn out, interprets Israeli laws, which tend to be in favor of Team Sarah. They definitely do. And we will definitely get to how those Israeli laws are sort of unevenly applied even to the Palestinians. But at that time, protests break out in solidarity with the family uh, removals. Tensions rise, uh, especially this is all sort of leading up to Jerusalem Day, and this is during Ramadan, which is an extremely important Muslim holiday. So you've got Team so, Hagar, super hangry, not not a good thing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of of ingredients in this soup. So it, as tensions continue to rise, you have uh, Israeli soldiers storming Al Aqsa Mosque. You have uh, you know Israelis sort of destroying Palestinian businesses. Uh, and well, you have TikTok videos. You have TikTok videos on both sides of inflammatory beat-ups, uh, you know, jumpings, uh, enough to make young, particularly unemployed or employed or whatever, just young men and women really pissed off and old men and women really pissed off. Yes. So after all this, the military leader of Hamas, who is like only has one picture ever of him taken, he's like extremely secretive. No one really even knows who he is. Uh, he issues a warning saying Hamas will take military action if they don't stop the evictions. Uh, about 10 days go by and the first rockets start to come over from Gaza into Israel. Um, okay, So now I think we just get into sharing different perspectives and then we slap hands on this one. Yeah, I feel like that's that's the uh, best way to go. So I've been talking for a while, been given a, a lot of the post-World War One context. And now that we're out of the history section, uh, we can uh, get into some some content or some uh, analysis. Yeah, let's let's just try three at a time here. So I think three things that I'll start off with that um, I believe and have had a lot of heard a lot of other people say in different degrees of intensity is that one in all these negotiations, 
the Palestinians haven't really been a great negotiator in that they don't acknowledge Israel's right to exist. And if we like we're America is never going to agree to a land deal with American Indians or Mexico or whomever, if the other side goes, we don't even agree with your with the borders of this agreement because we don't agree in you or we don't we don't condone or acknowledge you as, as, an, as a legitimate body. So until that one gets fixed, Israel's like, come on, number two. And I'll and it's as you, you know, I'll clearly I'll counter all these. Sure, sure, sure. Um, Hamas being the representative besides the PLO of the Palestinians when they conduct violence. They hide a lot of this stuff in civilian areas. Now, mind you, they're largely a guerrilla force, um, but whether it's in schools or in media buildings or whatever, it, like they do these things for two reasons. One, because they believe all martyrs of a holy war, which you know they're a part of, are going to paradise. So sort of the, the consequences aren't that grave. Number two, it's better for their international image. And it definitely puts a lot of people international opinion on their side. And finally, number three, just to kind of like contextualize the craziness is that the Palestinian uh, liberation organization, like the political side of this, not the Hamas, gives money to the families of martyr suicide bombers. And so it's like you have the other side that's like making express convictions of violence and Israel is largely they, they they make it very easy for Israel to say we're just defending ourselves we need these walls and like this is like a self-preservation thing more than anything else they make it too easy that, yeah that's that's definitely the uh I would say the, the consensus international view um and that's sort of how, how things have been taken especially in the United States um, and I'm going to complicate that a little bit by, uh, you know, t- just expressing some of the facts about what life is like under Palestine, uh, uh, in Palestine. So 90% of Palestine is occupied by Israel and under complete Israeli control and authority. Again, uh, there's 10%, which is Gaza is the only real part where there's some form of mild autonomy, uh, by the Palestinian people. But even there, Israel controls all Palestinian airspace, telecommunications, Internet, natural resources, border crossings, imports, exports via land, air, sea, doesn't matter. It's essentially a a total siege of this this area called Gaza. And one thing it's important to realize about Gaza is it's, I think, 140 square miles total. Uh, It's uh, six miles wide at its widest, two miles wide at its uh, at its shortest. 10 miles long, and it has 2.2 million people in it. It's one of the most population-dense places in the world. Even in 2015, the UN said Gaza would be unfit for humans to live in by 2020. Uh, and that was before this most recent wave of, you know, hellfire bombings. So if Israel's, you know, really that interested in keeping the, the Palestinians peaceable and, and uh, not feeling like they have to resist to survive, they're not doing a great show of it. Um, the vast majority of roads, bridges, and highways are only accessible to Israelis, and a great deal more have totally restricted use by Palestinians, where you know they can only access it at certain times or on certain, uh, it, it just in certain ways or going to certain places. Uh, 
half of uh, essentially half of the population of Israel lives under some form of un, um, of lesser political rights. Uh, the we, we can I'll get into it probably a little bit more about how, exactly how the laws apply differently to Palestinians, depending on where you live. Uh, but essentially, the vast majority of them have no political rights, no voting ability, no say in the government, which occupies their territory. And the ones who do have extremely limited political rights. Yeah, uh, just to tackle points at a time here, I think uh, while I can, again, see the Israeli side, like you don't want people not crossing through checkpoints that have expressly stated their desire to see you not exist and you know they're violent and they have weapons at the same time. If you've got a large youth population, a lot of young males, particularly, and with a bit of a sexually repressive, you know, religious situation. Uh, oh, and oh, by the way, they're not employed and don't have jobs does not not contribute to extremism, uh, frustration, rioting, those sort of things. So are you describing think, the Hasids? What's that? No, I, I guess what I'm saying is Israel is not perfect in laying up and enabling the best economic situation that could really help themselves. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up the young the issue of, of young men. And, and if if I'm not mistaken, over 50 percent of the population of Palestine is under the age of 18. Half of the people of these 2.2 million people are teenagers or, or younger. Um, which explains why there's been, you know, significant ch- casualties of, of children in this most recent conflict. Good point. But uh, that said, um, in Israel, Jews have full rights no matter where they are. I guess really the only place they, I mean, they can go to Gaza, um, but that's the only place where they're not fully under the protection of the Israeli authorities. Uh, now that said, Palestinians born in Gaza, uh, they have uh, 80% are refugees from towns and cities immediately outside of Gaza. Uh, so, you know, just 20 minute drive from Gaza is where their original family land was, where they lived. And uh, they now are refugees in this, you know, squalid, cramped, destroyed city. Uh, they're not allowed to leave. They're not allowed to travel. They're not allowed to visit other parts of Palestine. They have no way in or they have no way out. And even if they could get out, they would not be able to get back in. Uh, There's a 14 year old siege uh, that blocks fuel, food, building materials, uh, other goods. Since that siege has began, 90 percent of Gaza's industrial capacities collapsed. Um, And that's largely because, you know, if you have your buildings destroyed, but you can't import new building materials. That's I, I, I will just say yeah, Israel's not up with the best economic policy that would help the Palestinians or help themselves. So move on. Yeah. OK, well, that said, they have also have control of the water and electricity supply, um, about four hours of electricity a day on average for a Palestinian, um, 70 liters a day of water. UN recommends 100 Israeli settlers get 300 liters of water a day. And that's from an aquifer underneath, uh, underneath the West Bank. So um, not just economic, but natural resources. Israel not perfect could certainly be doing themselves uh, just locally as well as internationally uh, a lot better if they were sharing this a little bit more and or making it living conditions better. Yeah, and and the the last real difference i mean there there are others but the the big one is that gazans people born in gaza 
they don't have access to criminal courts. They're all tried by uh, Israeli military courts, which have about a 99.7% conviction rate. So that said, you don't want to live in Gaza. Not tried um, by a peer of or a, by your equals. Or your, by yeah, you're, you're, instead of that, you're being tried by some colonel from the IDF. Um, one rung up from that is the Palestinians living in West Bank. That's about 2.9 million. Um, they're barred from all about, but 30, uh, they're barred from all, but about 38% of the West Bank. Uh, you know, kind of, there's always the threat of land confiscation and settlement building. Uh, and there's 500 military, over 500 military checkpoints, um, in the area where they live that they just constantly have to go through, you know, constantly have to deal with, uh, the IDF who essentially can act with impunity because there's no one really holding them to account in any way. Um, one point up, one rung up from that is the Palestinians born in Jerusalem. That's about 300,000. Uh, they are, have more political rights or more, uh, they have, have to deal less with the Israeli authorities and the, the threat of confiscation. But as we see by this most recent uptick, that's <laughs> happening there too. Yeah, well, yeah, they got those are the folks that are sort of in it on the land uh, fight. Yeah, those the Palestinians in Jerusalem right now are the ones essentially the people are rallying around. Okay. Um, and finally, the uh, last Palestinians that live in Israel, the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, now, unlike most countries where citizenship is equated, you know, no matter what, in Israel, if you're a Palestinian, you you have the right to vote if you're a citizen but you're considered a non-Jew in the eyes of law. So there's a whole separate set of laws they have to abide by that Jews do not. So about um, one fourth of those ones, um, besides the citizens of Israel, uh, so yeah, so about one fourth of the Palestinians in Israel can vote, is what you're telling me. Uh, well, yeah, 1.6 million out of the, I believe, yeah, 6 million. So yeah, thereabouts. Um, so about 25% of them can vote. But those who can vote are not allowed to live in 68% of the towns in Israel. So okay. well over half of Israel's off limits even to Palestinians. Advanced manipulative gerrymandering a little bit. Yes. Okay. And the very last group of Palestinians are the exiled Palestinians. These are ones who left uh, during the Nakba and their descendants. Um, and they're barred by Israel from returning to their homeland since 1948. Never, not, none of them or any of their descendants have ever been allowed to return. Well, yeah, I mean, in 1948, they, they're, not, they're not coming into the land they were given because, yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so that I, is I essentially I mean. the conditions of Palestinian uh, living in Israel, Palestinian existence. So, you know, that's that's why from yeah, I think from a lot of people's oh, go ahead. Well, no. OK, yeah, I, I'll, I'll just say listening to that economic conditions suck natural resource sharing sucks. And so I um, don't think that justifies violence. I think I'm not going to say it's on the Palestinians not to be violent, but you see that, yes, Israel could uh, do it a lot better for the Palestinians and for themselves by treating the Palestinians better. These Palestinians could do themselves a lot better by not denying Israel's right to exist and supporting violence or terrorism. So I, I, I see both sides. Do you, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not quite as squeamish, to be honest, about um, Palestinian violence. Uh, Probably because, stop there because you'll lose p social capital with people who are on the other side. All I'm saying is I don't know what my reaction would be if I was uh, a Palestinian living in Gaza. 
I don't know how else I would feel like I could resist. Well, um, how else I could change my situation. I, it's really hard for me to say, yeah, well, they should be like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, right? And take nonviolent approaches because some of those have been successful. Some of those haven't been successful in world history. Um, yeah. That would just, it would, it would change the dialogue a lot, a lot and take the, literally the bullets out of the gun um, of Israel and a lot of like its supporters internationally. Yeah, and to your point, what I will what I'll agree with is that Hamas has never really had a any type of political vision for any sort of uh, recognition of the Palestinian state it, by the whole international community. It's let recognized by quite a bit of it, but not the whole. And liberation for the Palestinian people, they've really only exercised the military option. I mean, there have been other times where it's happened, but. They've never really given that as a vision to the people of Palestine. And then one thing I've heard like Christians say, which is like sort of unique for them in like at least the American national narrative is like, hey, like we support the cultural of Israel as well, which are pro-Western, democratic, progressive values where you have like things like advanced women's rights. And those other countries don't, not certainly to a standard that we would appreciate. And so it's one of those things where it's like, well, yeah, like we're also, it's like this, there's this argument, which I can see both sides on, but it's like, they're the Western ideology bastion in the Middle East as well, which yeah, is, I mean, which is that, also that, democratic and it's progressive. Well, I think the idea of it being democratic is very much complicated by the fact yeah. that half of the population can't vote. Not true. Uh, or have any say in, in, in their, their democratic process, democratic, quote unquote. And to the point of, uh, you know, Western progressivism, it's not like their game rights aren't legal. Um, I'm pretty sure the state of Israel, just by virtue of the amount of people they've they've killed in these wars, have killed more gays and women than Hamas could ever hope to. Um, well, now, I, I, I don't definitely want to be subscribing to hopes of things, but you know what? We'll just say Israel is in democracy of, of form and function. Um, they, like we, have had a spotty track record living up to its ideals. Yes, yeah, certainly from the American perspective, they are closer in model to, than uh, to our system than than many others in the Middle East. And I'll just refer back to my previous comment about, uh, well, hey, maybe Iran wouldn't be a, a caliphate if we hadn't deposed their leader. But what are you going to do? Let bygones be bygones. Um, <laughs> so that said, I think that's a good opportunity to kind of get into um, United States relationship with Israel, because at the end of the day, you know, this is a conflict that, that has to be settled by Palestinians, Israelis. But it certainly is complicated by the fact that the United States spends about $4 billion a year in military aid to one of those sides specifically. So I think, you know, from our perspective, the only thing we can really hope to influence or, or have any changeover is how the United States orientation towards Israel is. So from, from your perspective, one, one thing that I think is, you know, sort of been going around online that I've been seeing that a lot of people I think talking about it don't necessarily know what they're talking about, uh, which is the, the curious case of American evangelical loyalty to the state of Israel. Historically, Christians have not been the fondest of the Jewish people. Um, and I just, I, I think one thing a lot of people propose is that the reason why American evangelicals are so supportive of Israel is because the reestablishment of the state of Israel is what will lead to the eventual, uh, you know, prophecies of the book of revelations and the apocalypse. 
Uh, is that true? Not true? What, what, what truth is there to that? Yeah, good question. I think there are three main legs of like American evangelical support um, for them. And I think that's one of the three, but I think it's the lesser of the three. Still, still one of the three major, but I think the first two eclipse the third by probably two or three times. Um, okay. So, but I'll, I'll hit that one as its third leg, but I'll try to give you a good holistic answer. I think the first one that's most commonly said in churches and, you know, Bible studies and, and prayer groups um, is, uh, the Genesis 12 promise to Abraham, which is like, I will bless the nations to bless you and curse the nations to curse you. And so now uh, moderate progressive Christians could be all over the map on like, well, that's the Jewish uh, religious state, not the Jewish secular state. That is really now like we're all children of Abraham, particularly now that Jesus came um, and has blessed the world. And so that has been watered down, a lot of that sort of thing. But you can sort of see the confirmation bias association of like, well, America's been blessed in 250 shy years, like, and we've been supporters of Israel. So yeah, heck, can't since stop. 1948, that's been our best time. Yeah, we've right. Been like, we've been on top of the world since we were like, since Truman said, let's do this thing, uh, notwithstanding yeah. the communist competition. So I think that's number one. Um, number two is this idea that like they have, you know, values from their you know, one capitalism, two democracy, three, you know, treatment of their, their women and citizens. Again, you punched a pretty big hole in that with how they treat and create economic systems um, that are not super accommodable to the Palestinians. So, you know, that one's, uh, you know, it's got some flaws. And then the third one is this. Yeah. So like um, there have been a number of things in world history that have been pursuant to the uh, prophecies and revelation. Like one of the big reasons there were so many, uh, so much religious fervor in Europe to evangelize the new world is because there are prophecies that say like, not until the gospel has reached the ends of the earth will like the end times come. And so now mind you, there was some other greed going on there as well, but you know, for the more religiously pure, that's, you know, what they, God, glory and, you know, gold, something like that. Right. So, but God's, for the religiously pure, that, that that's been a big that's been a uh, motivation, and so yeah, man. Like uh, I won't get into it. Maybe this is a different episode that we can really sort of sparse up if our listeners are interested. But yeah, I think like the uh, the Wailing Wall is one of the walls that was part of like the old temple complex, and um, there will not only be peace, you know, in the region, but the temple will be rebuilt before it's all over. And so whether that's before or after the rapture of Christians, before or after, you know, the re revelation of the Antichrist, uh, good Christians disagree. However, um, the temple being rebuilt is super part of this whole deal. And um, and so, yeah, American Christians are probably asked to get that temple back more than like secular Jews are. <laughs> yeah, it does. Does seem I think I actually one of the like head ministers in Israel uh, was was quoted as saying like we, we don't we should like not focus on getting the support of American Jews anymore it's American evangelicals that are all about it um, and yeah there's certainly is, been a, a lot of tension between Israeli Jews and American Jews I won't use some of the slurs that I've heard in between the two but like yes and American evangelicals yeah like are hardcore like unabashedly pro-Israel stand with Israel I think largely because that first component but the other two play play a role. Yeah, and and as is often the case with 
causes that are important to the evangelical right in this country. The lobby for Israel is by far one of the most powerful in the country. And the reason I say that is uh, it's the only lobby that holds a conference that requires politicians to like essentially swear an oath of loyalty to a foreign nation. Well, and uh, this is why it's, it's a good point. It's, uh, it's, but why Trump was such um, like a red meat for the base mm-hmm. a Republican, because he was the first one out of however many presidents since I've been alive that have said, I support the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. So for the dude that comes in and actually does it like, you know, he's the anti-politician because he does what he says. And that's where you can see Trump actually being like a real like catalyst to the progression of like this Jewish state. And, and, and again, the support of Christians for Trump who go, man, his personality is terrible, but his platform and his policies are actually carried through. So it's like he's yeah, a I mean, person, it, but I trust him to do what he says. In ways, I, I, listen, and I'm not I trying don't. to defend him or Christian support of him, but you see what I'm saying? Like, no, I do. And I also agree that, like, it's true that every American president for like the last you know, 20 years before him said they were going to put the embassy in Jerusalem. Well, I'll, what I'll, I'll say is I'll agree. He did what he said. And it, at least he, you know, took a side and, and wasn't pretending to not take a side, but actually take a side. So. And I think that has led us to today, which is seems to be a much more open aperture, certainly the most open in my life that at least I've seen of some possibility for uh, a different future. Um, now, that said, it I think it a lot of it starts with America, you know, in your own state in Texas um, after Hurricane Harvey. Uh, there, there's for those who don't know, there one possible uh, resistance method to Israeli occupation of Palestine that has been tossed around the United States and elsewhere is the BDS program. That's uh, boycott, divest, and sanction. So it's you know boycotting products made in Israel, divesting funds away from Israel, and sanctioning Israel is is the political pillars of that program. Um, free speech, boycott is free speech. Um, now in your state. After Hurricane Harvey, uh, the governor signed a law that made it so that if you wanted to apply for relief for Hurricane Harvey, you had to promise to never, you had to sign and promise you would never support uh, a BDS law. Don't know exactly what that has to do with Hurricane Harvey, but I think it speaks to the power of the Israel lobby and of of that mission in the United States. Again, I'll say two things. One, that sounds anti-constitutional as much as I like our governor right now. Um, Two... I, you know, I think a lot like the Israel lobby gets a lot of the ire and I'm not saying they're not super strong, powerful and well connected and wealthy. But for a lot of these, like, you know, the squad members to come out against Israel lobby, dude, I see it a lot of like I've got mentors in Christian coalition and in other you know organizations that are like pro get out the vote for for Christians. And it's looked as like a biblical thing to support Israel. Right or wrong that I said, like the majority of American political Christian involvement mm-hmm. is yeah. support of Israel is a biblical stance. And so like, it almost doesn't even have anything to do with them. It, it doesn't do. I don't way. know. Like yeah. as far as amongst Christians, they don't care what Israel's in fact, they're puzzled by American Jews who don't support Israel. Right. But you're right. Like American Christians are hawks for Israel because they think it's like something that's pretty clear in the Bible. So now, mind you, there's different interpretations to it. And I know some Christians who disagree with that, particularly the mistreatment of Christian Palestinians, because there's like 2% of those. But um, 
I guess what I'm saying is like, besides the one conference that, and, and the, the political action committee associated with that whole thing, what, what is the Cyrus? Uh, APAC, uh, American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Okay. Besides that one, like, I think there's probably in America way more American Christian support of that than, than, than that's going on. So, um, Cyrus, I think we could talk solution, man, but like one state, two state, whether it includes uh, Palestine or Jordan or Israel, man, like I say, we just like skip that. I think we've, we've hit it. We're not going to convince anybody on the solution. I have heard a lot of good arguments, the ones I haven't heard necessarily before, but that's not our value add. Our value add is like seeing each other's perspective. We did this in a bit of a disjointed, but ultimately not hateful way. And hopefully we got, you know, uh, folks are sort of encouraged by that because uh, I didn't yeah, think I we mean, could do it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we've gotten through quite a bit where like, you know, I felt the passion rising in my chest. I've had and, like, uh, yeah, people have like reached out to uh, my wife and been like, who is your brother-in-law? He's a bleepity bleep. <laughs> and um, oh, yeah. And then Samantha put stuff on like, you know, online too. And then like her parents get, you know, man. It, 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 it is a wild deal. Like, and to be honest, I haven't met anyone who's not ignorant to some of the things that have happened in the past or clearly one-sided to the point where like, they don't know the other side. So I don't know, man, that's for me. It's just like, take, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And, but, and you know, clearly be on one side, like I'm team Sarah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's something that's important, I think. And, and it, it is something that, matters like i i support equal political rights for everybody um and when i see that not happening it it you know hurts me but yeah yeah you gravitate toward team hagar you have to you've always been one that's like yeah hasn't yeah um uh, (laughs) hey listen i while while the restrictions that the muslim religion offers uh you know may not suit my lifestyle particularly well i have great respect for all ancient religions so you know there you go. Peace and peace and love to all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think you're right. You know, we're not going to solve the Israeli Palestinian conflict. This is uh, as, as you know, wise as we are, as, uh, as much experience as we have solving international conflict, this one might be a little bit out of our hands. Um, I'll take, yeah, I'll take one. And I think we'll agree on this too. Cause I've seen a lot of social media stuff from different folks who've been like, yo, look, your science silence is complicity and for both sides. So it's basically like put a flag in your profile picture, make a post, make a story, whatever about who you support. But like, let's be honest, dude, that's just getting you stirred up. It's exposing you. It's driving you further away from people who like probably see it differently. And so I think we got to take that amount of energy and reinvest it hyper local into loving your neighbors more because. Well, that that's the exact thing, you know, is, is that I, while I believe strongly in my opinion on this subject, it's very hard for me to hold it against, especially any American who believes the like pure opposite of what I do, because that's what you get here. You know, that's, that's, that's what you're told. And, and, and similarly, you know, I'm in, I have my own bubble where I get fed just constant information about this, this side of things. And so it's, this was, as you said, an experiment in can people have this conversation and not come away really you know f- having less respect <laughs> and yeah. hating their heart for the other person and, and, and it's, it can be tough but i think if we can do it then you know maybe others can too 
Good. No. And you know what? Cyrus is about to move to New York. And so I was trying to convince him to do a Southern swing and come by through Texas. Cause I've had neighbors, friends, church members be like, like want to gawk at Cyrus and just talk to him <laughs> um, a bit of a, like a, you know, like you're, you're out of the zoo kind of thing. Um, yeah. Similarly, I've had, I've had friends uh, reach out to me and be like, your brother's not, not that religious, right? Like that's, that's a bit, isn't it? And I just have to be like, man, if only you actually knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you say? Cause like, I feel if anything, like I... he plays it down. Right. I feel um, like I'm trying to like, not be crazy <laughs> yeah man that comment about uh you know it's funny because it just washes over me at this point but when you said that thing a couple episodes ago about not watching designated survivor anymore because it's a little too sultry and uh too much sexual intrigue and and too much unnecessary violence like i had friends be like that that can't be right that can't be true and i'm like dude well, dude, I mean, like, one, our mass media is total garbage. And, like, and what yeah, we, we, yeah. we allow to entertain ourselves. But, like. Another thing Christians and socialists, I think, can agree on. Well, yeah, man. And, oh, golly, if I have one thing the Christians listening, like, do a scrape of your entertainment, right? If you are, like, unintentionally consuming things that do not make you better, make you uh, bring your bring you closer to God, then ultimately you are feeding yourself with like fast food that might taste good, but not the good part of you is, is, is enjoying that. That is, yeah, is just, I, I was talking, it, it wrecks your soul as much as it wrecks your emotions and your spirit and your, you know, standards of de all decency and love and truth. And like what commitment is in relationship or whatever. Like I've got dogs in me that don't need the food. You know what I mean? And I know that. And so I don't want to strengthen that by watching just freaking filth. No. Yeah. I was talking with, with a friend the other day about, you know, like if you feed a cow corn slop its whole life, it, it won't want grass. It'll want corn slop. Um, and, and the same, I think is very much true of our media diet. You know, if, if you just become accustomed to just getting that next cup of gruel and your uh, next nutrition bar, you know, just that's, I mean, think about it, right? Like, so we, we have Netflix sort of to my chagrin, but we have it and we don't have a TV downstairs. So, you know, that's like one of the Hills I have been like willing to die on. Um, <laughs> and so the TV's upstairs and then, you know, as we have like different people come in, it's summertime. So different folks are coming to check out North Texas to potentially move. And so we've had Netflix sort of on in the background, not even on something in particular. And, you know, they've got those three adjectives at the bottom of the show. I find those really fascinating because, I can't tell you how many times I've seen irreverent, dark, and like like whatever else as, as an adjective. Think about yeah. that. If you're consuming media, entertainment that is irreverent, really the opposite of reverent and dark, <laughs> like you go, especially if you watch that before you go to bed, you are sowing seeds of irreverence and darkness. Like, and I don't even have to make a, an explicit spiritual argument as much as that I is like, you going to eat good food. You're going to eat bad food. Well, that's most, that is my media diet, but <laughs> the reverend and dark, <laughs> but, but I mean, but, think about uh, that, like, but, but it's, it's self-proclaiming. It is self-proclaiming. Yeah, not, not just for the sake of it. You know, I think that's, that's really what it is, is, is you, there's you can so make much arguments to say like, it's good sometimes, but dude, like, zuh. 
You know what? Like for yeah. instance, Samantha and I um, were we we watched like we're going through this huge. This is my last little snippet before we we sign off here. But yeah, <laughs> um, when we uh, to watch movies, I have to. One of my like qualifications that I, I kind of get excited for is like we'll watch on a classic something almost everyone has seen, even if I don't think it's good for me because I feel like it sort of makes me more of like you know uh, an appreciative American. I can relate to different generations. So we've been going through, like, we just watched Grapes of Wrath, 1940. If you haven't seen it, boy, it's a good argument for socialism post, you know, World War II, right? Um, yeah. Or a good book that I didn't read in high school. So <laughs> we were going to watch either All About Eve, um, or which, which has a cameo of a Marilyn Monroe early career, by the way. Or we were going to watch Clockwork Orange, which I've never seen or read. Wow. And so we so we had convinced Samantha, who's a little bit more Orange? never seen Clockwork Orange. And so do we oh, watch probably No, last night we watched about the first 10 or 15 minutes. And even Samantha was like, when they were in the house, like like storming in, she was like, dude, I don't I don't need I, I can't see this before bed. Because Samantha's like has wild dreams. Wild dreams. Yeah. And so she's like, This is not good for me. And I was like, you know what? Amen, sister, because even though this is a classic, dude, I'm still thinking about I just I just everything I, I consume visually is in my mind 25 times before it, it, it spirals out of there. You know what I mean? So we didn't finish it. Yeah, we watched that, all about it. Interesting you bring that up. There was like, I forget exactly what happened, but after that movie came out in Great Britain, uh, there was like some attack or something by some teens. And Kubrick actually, who's the director, um, actually came out and said that he he wanted it taken down. He didn't want the movie to be out anymore um because he was worried about like how people were going to take it i mean authorial intent of course kubrick wouldn't support anything like that but all well, that to say yeah what what you do consume can have an effect yeah and just just as a random ode for someone out there that this matters to right now um emotions can be emotions you know anger even maybe lust or jealousy um uh ambition or greed but when that emotion starts wanting for itself and not wanting for your best interests, then mm. it, to me, taps into a good distinguishing line between maybe that's more spiritual. Maybe that's a spirit of greed, right? It doesn't care how much, you know, in marginally you sacrificed in relationships. It doesn't care that like the actual carrying out of that act of lust would like wreck families. It wants for itself. It wants for you. Ah, no, that's the lie. It wants for you, but it really wants for itself, right? When you're so angry, yeah, I mean, I stay like, angry. That's not for you. That's a spirit of anger effing with you. You know what I mean? And yeah. so. No, I, 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 yeah, it's like literally like what is animating you? What is the animus in, inside you? And if anger or greed is animus, then that's in, what's in control. Um, well, man, we've gotten a little bit away from our uh, topic. We needed that, dude. I needed I, a I, quick I, cold water wash after like ugh, all that yeah yeah team that Hagar, be, team it, we've been thinking about this for a, for a while uh i mean obviously not as long as some but uh you know it's it's consumed us for a bit and uh i think i don't know if we accomplished anything but i i feel like we did i feel like uh, at least i could use a shower i could definitely uh, <laughs> well you definitely could use a shower we've had these conversations <laughs> um yeah. Only yeah. certain women find that attractive. So. <laughs> <laughs> but the ones who do, oh, baby. 
Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. So <laughs> next episode, you said you were going to read through Matthew with me. Yes, I think I think that's uh, that's what's on the count. And then we'll so we can... hop back to the const or the, the manifesto. Yes. Yeah. So appreciate those bearing with us for this little interregnum. Um, and I uh, hope you'll join us for our read through of Matthew next week. Um, but other than that, anything else you have, Chase? I have a bladder like a two-year-old, so this is me hopping around. Every single episode, I am. I know it's time to start wrapping it up because Chase is just bouncing in front of the webcam. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, that said, I think it's a good time to wrap up. Uh, love you. Good combo today, and look forward to talking to you soon. Love you too, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Eternal, and this has been a this has been cross of gold thank you for listening uh, i'd like to thank sant invictus for producing our intro and outro songs and uh look forward to seeing you next time